and I'm reading from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, which is entitled Habakkuk's Second Complaint. Um, And I'm going to read up to chapter 2, verse 4. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why, then, do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Please do take out your Bibles. It's lovely to have Habakkuk 1 on your lap. Uh, We started this little book called Habakkuk last week. Um, It's in the 6th century uh, BC. There's a map here just to get our bearings. We saw this last week. Um, Judah, where Habakkuk is writing to, is at the top in in Jerusalem. There's the great forces of Babylon and uh, Assyria coming in um, from the east and from the west, you've got Egypt and there's political turmoil. Uh, these great forces are greater than we are. Their armies are far superior. There's turmoil on the outside. There's horrors and evil going on and spiritual apathy on the inside. And Habakkuk says, where are you, God? Are you there? Do you care? That's chapter 1, verse 1 through to verse 11. Uh, and we're looking at this book not just because we like history lessons. Some of us don't. Some of us do. History was ruined for me by Mrs. Parkin. I'll never forgive or forget how I love history now, but it was awful in middle school. But uh, no, I will forgive at some point long in the future. But uh, history is so important because history, when you understand history, it helps you to understand the times you live in. That's why we're looking at it. It's a book that's only 3,000 years old or thereabouts. And yet, as we saw last week, it's bang up to date in its application for when we face hardships in our own lives, when we face huge pandemics globally, when financially um, our pension pots tank, when there's a suffering looming large, when the doctor gives us news that we never ever wanted to hear. Habakkuk has a lot to say to all of those issues and a lot more. Habakkuk prayed to God. He was wrestling. That's one of the encouragements we got last week. When you wrestle, don't stop praying to God who you may think is there or not. You keep praying, seeking his face, asking for his help. And sometimes the best you can do is just to cling on and hope. And that's something what Habakkuk was doing, verses 1 to 11 last week. He prayed, are you there, do you care? And God says, you think things are bad now, things are going to get a whole lot worse now, but I'm in control. And Babylon are going to send, they're going to come in, they're going to sack and destroy Jerusalem, not one stone on top of another. But I'm going to do something far more wonderful in the future that if I told you now, you would never even believe it. And he's talking about restoration, and ultimately he was talking about Jesus. 
by the time we get to verse 12, um, Habakkuk's praying again. He prays again, verses uh, 12 to 17, uh, or thereabouts, verse 1 of chapter 2 as well. And then God answers. And in this little section, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, there are uh, phrases, metaphors, there are verbs as well, that culminate to teach us and tell us about this hugely important biblical theme that I want to meditate on from this passage. And that is waiting on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? You can get two uh, groups of people. There's a Christian who's, who sits there in uh, confusion uh, doing squat. That's a technical term. Doing absolutely nothing. And they're not praying. They're not caring. And, and you say to them, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm waiting on the Lord um, with my cup of tea. I'm, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And then you get someone else who says, you know what you need to do? You look down of mouth. You look fed up. You need to wait on the Lord. And they kind of point at you with an accusing finger like that. And both groups of people sound spiritual. One is doing not very much. Um, one is looking like they're being spiritual. But what does this phrase mean? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It sounds passive, but actually it's very, very active. It sounds uh, super spiritual, but actually it's profoundly biblical. And these phrases and these verbs, verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 2, help us to get a handle on it. First of all, it means waiting patiently, waiting on the Lord. What does it mean? It means waiting patiently. It's patience. Look at uh, verse 3 from chapter 2. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. Though it lingers, wait for it. Though it lingers, wait for it. Here's Habakkuk. He's still in a bad place. He's still thinking God doesn't care. He's still thinking God is impotent and, and not powerful. Remember from verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting? It's one of the most confrontational sentences anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Are you there? Do you care? Do you have power? Are you who you say you are? He's very upset. He's looking for answers. And God says, I'm going to give you answers. Verse uh, 3 of chapter 2. But it may take some time. You need to be patient, Habakkuk. You need to wait. Now, for those of us that use public transport, you know, sometimes it's absolutely brilliant. Bang on time, especially the trains. The trains are always on time. I have to say that because there's a train driver in the room. But sometimes buses are not. And sometimes you get the, the, the red LED screens that say your bus is coming in four minutes and maybe a zero needs to be added to that. It just doesn't come. Sometimes you need to be patient when you wait for a bus, when you're in the doctor's waiting room. NHS is a remarkable entity. It's under a lot of pressure. It's going to get even worse, I suspect. But when you go to the waiting room, sometimes you just have to wait. And for someone that likes to get things done, patience is a hard thing for me to acquire. Why haven't you got time to see me? Where's the bus? How hard can it be? You're just driving in a straight line around a few roundabouts. What's wrong? Why are there cars in the way? You're in, uh, my agenda is not going to be fulfilled. I want to get stuff done. Patience is something that other people have, not me. That may be you. You may be one of those kind of explosive characters. You may be someone who just likes to express themselves. You're inner Italian coming out all the time. But actually, uh, Habakkuk is teaching us from chapter 2, verse 3, one of the most basic things about waiting on the Lord is patience in him. When you're tempted to blow up, what time do you call this bus driver? Don't you know I've got, I've got to get to work. When you're tempted just to go home, and go to some other resource. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 says, waiting on the Lord at its most basic thing is, is patience. And it's not something that's an optional 
extra. When it comes to the Bible, patience is, is part of the DNA of the Christian life. I get it from James chapter 4. It says that at the heartbeat of patience is humility. It's not something that some people have and some people don't. In James 4, it says this. Now listen, all those who say today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to this city, I'm going to spend a year there, I'm going to carry on business, and I'm going to make money. That's what I'm going to do in the future. Why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Instead, you should say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You've got your plans about the future. You think you know what's best. You've got your scheme and your agenda. You know what your life's going to look like, like in two, five, ten years' time. You're ambitious and you've got hopes and plans and schemes. But you don't even control your next breath. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, let alone two, five, ten years. Better off if you said, well, if that's the Lord's will. But when the pressure is on, humility gets eroded. And you're thinking in your fear like me and in your anger and in your worry, I just want to feel better about myself. I don't know where you are, God. And Habakkuk's thinking this. And so you, barely, you kind of have a load of chocolate and you have a load of wine. You have a, you have a load of something just to make you feel better because patience just isn't in your grid right now. And here Habakkuk is saying, no, patience is part of the DNA of the Christian life. The reason you struggle with patience, the reason I struggle with patience, is because we think we know what's best. We think we know what time the bus should arrive. It's on our time, and it's always our time. The doctor should see me first, not someone with their leg hanging off, and so on. We think we know what's best. But in the heartbeat of the Christian life, when we know that we have a good, good Father in heaven, patience is something all of us should model in our hearts. It's humility. The book of Habakkuk has been called the mini-Job. I like it because it's shorter than Job. And in Job, perhaps the key sentence in the whole of the book of Job says this, Job 23.10, God knows what he's doing with me. Which is another way of saying, I can't see what God is doing in my life, but he can, and I'll trust him because he's good. And then Job goes on to say, I don't know, this is me paraphrasing, I don't know what God is doing, I have no idea, but then he says, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. God is doing something in my life that I could not learn any other way. And the key to understanding what it means to wait on the Lord is patience. Patience. Here's the second one, perspective. Perspective. What does that mean? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I will station myself on the ramparts, Here is Habakkuk, he doesn't know where God is, he doesn't know what God is doing. And yet he says, I need to get some perspective. And so he goes up on the walled city and he's looking beyond, up onto the ramparts, up onto the tower perhaps. And why would they build these walled cities? For protection, yes, but at certain key points there would be towers as well. And why would they be there? For perspective, for safety and security. So there'd be a sentry who would go up upon the ramparts and he would look out into the future, he would look out around, And he would say, oh, storm's coming. Enemies are coming. Uh, An emissary is coming with good things. Open the gates, let them in. Enemies are coming. Shut the gates. Let's prepare for battle. You can see everything that's coming when you're on the top of the tower. You can look up in the skies, you can look on the ground. And spiritually, that's exactly what it means to wait on the Lord. It's, It's patience, but it's also perspective. Now, we live in a time... Well, you can choose your news feed. You can choose what you listen to on iTunes or or Google Play. 
you can choose your content. And so our world can be defined about how we access it. And we lose perspective very, very quickly. Things get too much for us. Things are overwhelming. Small things actually become huge things. And so we can't sleep. And one of the matters that is so important of waiting on the Lord is patience, but also perspective. Paul does this in Romans 8. Paul in Romans 8 says this. He says, beginning that chapter, for I reckon. For I reckon. And that's a mathematical word that says, I've done a bit of adding up in God's economy. I've, I've looked at the, uh, God's character and, and the current things that are uh, causing me anxiety. And I reckon that God is bigger than that. He says, I, I'm working out the detail because God is bigger than my problems. He goes on to say this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared with the glory which will be revealed. He says, this is how I feel. This is how uh, anxiety is besetting me. There are big demons in my mind and I feel overwhelmed. Suffering is overwhelming. It's too much I want to throw in the towel. And then I compare it to the future. And this is so much smaller than that. That's so much greater than this. I'm going to persevere. He had physical problems. He had problems with his eyes. He was persecuted. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked. And he put it all in perspective how? Because he compared this with the glory to come. What's Paul doing? He's going to the tower. He's going to the ramparts, spiritually speaking. He's looking at his present experience in light of the whole. And suddenly, his huge sufferings look smaller. They're still there. They're still real. They're still important. They still matter. But he's comparing this world to the next. It's so practical. It's so real. Everything culturally pressures us to think about tomorrow. Everything is instant. Everything is selfie-centred. And then here is a perspective that we need to gain, whether you're a teenager at school, whether you're an adult at work, whether you're facing redundancy or retirement feels scary. It's perspective. Spiritually, Habakkuk is such a good example because he goes to the watchtower and there he can see what God will do. He's looking for God's help and his hand and his coming. So that means waiting on the Lord is not passive. Waiting on the Lord is active. It's patience, it's perspective. It's also obedience. Number three, it's obedience. Look at verse one. I will stand at my watch. I will stand at my watch. He's not talking about on his timepiece. He's saying I stand at my watch. Now look, um, if you go up to London, you'll see one of these fine uh, chaps with a, a huge sweaty hat going on, but it's a sentry. Now just imagine if a sentry it gets a bit cheesed off one day. It's a bit, a bit hot and bothered. I really need an ice cold Coke. I'm just going to go down to the local Witherspoons and get a pint of Coke and a curry. No one will miss me. All will be well. Just imagine someone else is just feeling, I'm just so bored. The only attention I get is from tourists. I'm out of here. I'm going to go and powder my nose and then I'm going to come back. Um, it must be so easy if you're a sentry to feel fed up and bored and hot and bothered, it would be a lot easier job if I could just take this jolly hat off. I mean, why don't they make it out synthetic rather than actual animal skin? My head is burning hot. Sentries must get bored, they must get sleepy, they must get really, really badly treated, some of them. Just, you know, people right up in their face. And they just must think, forget it. I'm going to go and work in uh, somewhere else where it's easier for me. Does that matter if you're the sentry? Of course it does. Of course it does. Fulfilling your duty is what being a sentry is all about. You do not get to clock off until the next sentry comes. You do not get to take your hat off because it's part of the uniform. You do not get to put your gun down because it's too heavy. It's 
part of your equipment. You don't get to go to Witherspoons for a drink unless it's the end of your break. Being a sentry is all about obedience. You can't knock off early, you can't be tired, you can't be bored, you need to focus. You cannot leave your post. And what that means about waiting on the Lord in the Christian life is very profound and profoundly simple. You may be weary, you may feel that your quiet times are as dry as a bone, you may feel that you pray and actually there are no answers coming. You may feel that you're getting absolutely nothing out of your Christian life, your Christian walk at the minute at all. And yet, chapter 2 verse 1 says, you're still on guard. Stay on guard. Keep doing what you know is important to do. You need to obey. Sometimes duty and delight can feel opposites, but they're not. They can come together. And John Newton, someone wrote him once, the, the famous uh, hymn writer of Amazing Grace, someone wrote to him and said, um, my prayer life is really awful. What should I do? And he says, well, let me tell you, if you stop praying, it'll be even worse than it is now, so keep going. Sometimes it feels so dry, but keep going. Wait on the Lord. This word waiting and standing on my watch. Think about what that means. It's not passive, it's very, very active. If you, if you take a friend out to uh, any restaurant that's a bit better than McDonald's, someone will wait on you. There'll be a man or a woman who are not being passive. If they are being passive, you might click your fingers or say, can I come and have my bill? Or can I get some more water, please? You do that kind of stuff. Waiting is someone who's working hard, a man or a woman who, whose job it is, is to meet your needs, is to, to do their work and then they can clock off later, but they cannot stop whilst they're working, they're running around doing all they can. And here's Habakkuk, it's an evil time, huge powers, Egypt, uh, Babylonian, Assyria, spiritual uh, disaster and apathy and negligence going on in Judah. And yet he's still praying. He's still on duty. What does that mean for you and me? When you feel dry, you still go to life group. When you feel fed up, you still pray. When you feel God is silent, you still read your Bible, maybe even just small parts, one at a time. You keep meeting with Christian friends. You keep coming to church. Even if you feel absolutely I'm getting nothing out of this, you keep coming, waiting on the Lord, putting your trust and hope in him. It's patience, it's perspective, it's obedience. And it's also for God. Number four, it's for God. When you wait on the Lord... It's those things, but the question is why? The question is, so what? Now, I thought twice about putting this in, but, but here we go. When you're waiting on the Lord, you are not primarily waiting for an answer. When you're waiting on the Lord, it's not primarily waiting for an answer. You're not primarily waiting for a why. Look at the Psalms, look at the end of Habakkuk when we get there, look at the end of Job. You're not waiting on the Lord's uh, things. You're waiting for him. And there is a difference. You're waiting for him to reveal himself to you. So in this, uh, in the full-size book of Habakkuk, which is Job, if Job is the big version and Habakkuk is the small version, Job begins with Satan coming to tempt and speak to God. He's speaking to God saying, I want to lay a wager with you, God. Job only follows you because of what he, you give to him. And I think if you give me permission and if I can do some certain things and take away all of the good things that you've given to him, I think he will condemn you and curse you. I think that actually Job does not love you. He's not in this for you. He's in it for the things he gets from you. 
He's after getting things from you. But he doesn't love you. He just wants the money and the success that you give to him. The test, friends, in my heart and your heart, when I've been through suffering, and maybe if you've experienced it too, the test, the, the opportunity for growth when suffering hits or whether it stays, is when a Christian stays with the Lord, stays with God, when you're getting nothing out of it at all. The danger comes when you think, I'm going to stick in this because I want something from the Lord. I want something from God. So you don't want him, you want what he gives you. And if you look at Job, at the end of Habakkuk, as a wonderful reality. They're wrestling spiritually. Are you there? Do you care? Do you feel my pain? Why aren't you acting? They're wrestling. And there's a wonderful ending. They're asking God hard questions. And in the, a, uh, in the end, Psalms and Habakkuk and Job stick with God. Why? Why do they stick with him? Because God, through suffering and only through suffering, has revealed to them that they've become servants. They're people who love him just for who he is, not for what he gets from them. Habakkuk and Job, they serve God just because of who he is, just to know him more, just to enjoy him more. Whenever darkness descends on you, whenever bad thing happens, whenever you get disappointed, whenever you get upset, I think God is answering us a question, asking us a question. He's asking us this question. Now I'll find out whether you want me to serve you or whether you'll be in it for the long term and will you serve me? Do you want something from God or do you just want God? That's what suffering will sift us through. And suffering is like that pressure that turns coal into a diamond. Suffering is like that pressure that can make a dry prayer life a rich prayer life because it's all you have and then you know it's all you need. There'll be a peace about the person that's been through suffering. There'll be a poise and a growth in character. I'm in this with God forever. I don't need anything out of it as long as I have you. That's the aim of the book of Habakkuk and Job and Psalms and the whole Bible. To see the preciousness of God. I'm not doing this and that and that to get anything. I just want you. Fifthly, finally, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means joy. Now, you do not need joy to wait on the Lord, but wouldn't it be nice if we had some joy? It's kind of a short supply at the minute, globally. In, uh, in verse 4, a very famous sentence in, in Habakkuk 2, you've got a sentence that's picked up by Paul in Romans and in Galatians, and it's this sentence, uh, the righteous will live by his faith. Now, faith, you could say, oh, faith is just a kind of stoic, stiff upper lip, uh, stoically going after God, saying, I will do this, I will do this, and pursuing him, holding on to him with all your might. But actually, it may be more helpful to think about uh, someone of faith is someone who responds to what God has done in the gospel in their hearts, what God has done to save us in Jesus Christ. You don't need joy, but it'd be nice to have some. And there's this one little verse in Luke uh, chapter 12 that I came across this week that describes, although it is about patience, although it is about perspective and obedience, although it is about getting God rather than anything else, we can also be motivated by joy as we wait for the Lord. In Luke 12, 37, 38, there's this uh, wonderful little parable that I've skipped by for years. It says this, there are two groups of people. 
There are people who are waiting for God and they're waiting obediently. There are people who are waiting for God, but they don't think he's going to come and they're living their life in their own way. Two groups of people, one for God, one against God. One living patiently, obediently, one not living patiently, one not living with an eternal perspective, one living for themselves. Here's the parable. Luke 27, 12, 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. When Jesus wants to underscore something in the days before word art, he would say verily, verily, truly, truly. It's a solemn statement, it's really important. And here Jesus is saying, at the end of time, I want to tell you solemnly what's going to happen. At the end of time, I'm going to have all of my forever family sit down at a huge table. I'm going to gird up my loins and I'm going to wait on them. I'm going to use all my power, the power that created the universe, to serve my people, to do them good. Gird is not kind of a word you use these days, but to gird your loins means to tuck up your expensive tunic, put it in your belt, and then you could do some hard work. Then you could run. Then you could wait on people, waitress on people. And here you have this remarkable truth that you have the God who made the universe, Jesus Christ, saying in the future, for those people who wait on me, wait for me, wait patiently, obediently, with perspective, for me, not from, from what you can get from me, I will wait on you. I will use all my omnipotent energies and energies, all my ex, you know, everything I've got, and I'm going to give it for your great good and joy. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to concentrate all my uh, immensities of my own person and being, and I'm going to do you good. If you wait for me, I will wait on you, says the gospel. It's a remarkable claim. I will serve you. And you think, well, how do we know that? Because of the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus worked. He girded up his loins and he set steadfast for Jerusalem and he went to the cross for the glory of his Father and our great good. He took our sin upon his shoulders. He worked hard serving his Father so that he'd have something to give to us as well. I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to wait on you through the cross, through the resurrection, through the empty tomb, and so that in eternity I can do you a great and lasting good. How do you know God will not give up on you as you wait on him, as he appears absence in like Habakkuk 1 and Habakkuk 2, because he didn't give up on you then? He persevered through the cross, ascended at the right hand of his Father. And so you can wait for him now because he waited on you then. And he'll wait on you in the future as well. He'll serve you good things and a table surrounded by your enemies. You'll be protected for them for eternity future. And so what does it mean now when God feels distant and far? It means to wait on the Lord. And that's an issue of patience and perspective and keeping going, obedience for God, not for what he can give you. And even joy is thrown into the mix as well. Let's pray.